We come now to the second section in our study of Psalm 119. The second one begins at verse 9. Psalm 119, and we'll read verses 9 to 16. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you'll show us what kind of mind is here. And we pray that this mind would be in us and that all that it entails that you would make more and more true of us. Would you enable us to grow in our faith, to grow in our salvation, or grow in our knowledge of you? And Lord, reflect these words. Father, we pray that you would aid us Grant us what we need. Grant us the grace we need to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. In this second section, your Bibles will have a heading, just as it did in the first section, in all of these sections. And it will be either uh, a symbol, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, or the name of it in transliteration. And in this case, it is Beit. B-E-T-H. Beit. What we have here in these psalms is an alliteration, perhaps for the sake of memory. What we have in the original language, in the first eight verses, every verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet called Aleph. In this case, we have every verse from verses 9 to 16, starting with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Beit. And that's the way it continues throughout the psalm. Various psalms in certain portions of the Old Testament are written this way, and it is likely written this way for the sake of memory. It's a mnemonic device, a memory device to help us understand or remember these words. And in fact, in this case, it might quite obviously be that because he wants to meditate and he wants to have the Word of God treasured in him. Well, we don't know Hebrew and we don't speak Hebrew, but we can find ways to memorize and meditate upon the Word of God. And I bring this to your attention because this is very necessary. Some people have memorized this whole psalm or parts of this uh, psalm, and it would be a, a good thing for us to do the same. Find ways, whether it's musically, whether it's through alliteration, whether it's through an acronym or whatever it may be, to help us remember and, and study these words, we ought to do so. Well, now we're at verse 9. And in verse 9... We continue with a prayer, this long prayer, which is his his fundamental basic desire to know God through the Word of God. To know Him and to love Him, to walk with Him, to fear Him, to experience Him by the Word of God. This is what he wants. This is his fundamental and basic ambition. And this should be our ambition as well. Well... When we study this psalm, we often come across a notion that is popular within Christianity. 
There are many people, both in huge and large churches and also in small churches, there are people, and even pastors themselves, who will say that it is bad and wrong to study the Bible. That they think it is a bad thing for us to study the Bible. In fact, recently this week, a friend showed me an article in which this pastor asserts that very thing. He asserts that if you read the Bible and know the Bible too much, you become arrogant. So knowledge of the Bible or knowledge of the Word of God in his mind produces arrogance. Now that's his way of skirting around the issue. That is, he wants to be able to preach whatever he wants to preach. And he doesn't want anybody who listens to him to ask him, does the Bible really teach that? Even if they had a sincere and curious desire to know the truth of any matter of life, he doesn't want anybody to challenge his thinking. This is basically the problem. They think that their way and their wisdom is better than God's wisdom. And then they accuse the people who are just wanting to know, how does what you just said comport with what's here in Scripture? And they think that's arrogance. It's arrogance to ask a question. But it's not arrogance. And in fact, the true and humble person is the one who knows the Bible and submits to whatever the Bible says. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being. But to this one will I look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. True humility comes by trembling at the Word of God. We must know the Word of God, and that's what produces true humbleness or humility and contrition in us. More knowledge of the Word of God. So, as the world and even nominal Christianity is prone to do, they love to turn darkness into light, and they love to turn bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter. They love to reverse the truth. So it is not arrogance to know the Bible. It is not arrogance at all. It, it, in fact, it inculcates humility. It produces humility within us. That's what we need. And that's what David understood. David who wrote these words. Even in verse 9. Notice this question. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. When he asks this question, he's not asking because he doesn't know the answer. He's, he doesn't have any kind of vain curiosity either. What he's doing is he is spurring our minds. He is presenting a question to make us curious to know the answer. Because many people don't consider this question. Many people don't even ask this question. They don't ask it of themselves. They don't ask it of other people. How can a young man keep his way pure? This question assumes that we ought to be pure, even as young men or young people. It assumes that we ought to keep our way pure. And he gives the answer by keeping it according to your word. Youths have many, many temptations that they face. They have many temptations they face. They have, uh, I, I may alliterate with the letter F. One 
They want fun. Youths, young people, they want fun. And whatever fun they can imagine or whatever fun they hear of, they want fun, fun, fun. They don't want any seriousness. They don't want any hard work. They don't want any responsibility. They don't want anything like that. They just want to have fun all the time, 24-7, until they're so exhausted that they sleep. And then when they sleep, they have fun sleeping for a long, long time, an extra long time. They just want fun. Another problem that youth have is food. Food. Whether it's nitpicking about food, they like one thing or, not, or another, or in indulging in food, too much food, food and drink, whatever it may be, food becomes a temptation to them. They want to do whatever they think is, is wise in their own eyes, according to their own whims and desires. A third one is fornication. A third F is fornication. Fornication, especially men, young men, they indulge in fornication. Of course it takes a woman, but usually it's the desire of the man that uh, is the instigator and the aggressor in fornication. Fornication is sex, any kind of sex, outside of marriage uh, when, when you're not married. When you are single and you have sex or any kind of deviation from marital sex, then that is biblically called fornication. And this is what a lot of young people do. They have these sexual desires. They don't know what to do. They don't try to control them. And in many cases, the culture and sometimes even their own parents encourage them to pursue it. And this is something that they face, that they need to reject. And then we have fickleness. We have fickleness. They have, young people have many emotions, many feelings, and in, this, in these emotions and feelings, they are fickle. They like one thing, they don't like another temporarily. Even for a split second, it happens. Both boys and girls do this. They have fickleness. They have no resolve. They don't understand what the right path is and that they should follow that path. And often it's the fads of the world that bombard them and say, oh yeah, this way is good and that way is good. Let's do this thing and let's do that other thing. Let's be this and let's be that. Whatever the world says, their fickleness drives them along instead of a complete, true and total resolve to do the will of God. So this question for the young man is not an irrelevant question. It is a very relevant question because if youths don't rectify and resolve these kinds of passions and temptations now, they can be hardened in practicing those sins. They should not practice those sins later in life either, but there is less hope to resolve those later in life if one is so hardened and seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron in their youth. It is very, very difficult to overcome later in life. So this is the time of life. This is the time when they must consider these things. They must consider, what does the Bible say, and how can I be a righteous and holy young man of God? And then there are some who say, well, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's, we can't do this. We can't live this way. When actually, we can. We can by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The grace of God is manifested by His Spirit and His Word. We can overcome. We have examples of this in Scripture. We do know that in the case of Joseph, Joseph in the book of Genesis, Genesis 37 to 50, 
Joseph was a young man when he was sold as a slave. He was sold as a slave at the age of 17, and he did not become the second ruler of Egypt until he was age 30. And what happened between the ages of 17 and 30 to young Joseph? He was a slave in the house of Potiphar, uh, the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh. He was a slave in that household. Potiphar's wife, she was a loose woman. And she saw how handsome and beautiful this young man was, and she wanted him. She begged for him. She pleaded with him. But what did he say? What did he say as a young man between this age, these ages of 17 and 30 when the passions and the desires are very, very strong in young men? He said, how could I do, commit this sin against God? How could I do such an evil thing and sin against God? That's what he said to her. And he ran away. He fled when she grabbed him to do so. When they were alone in the house. It so happened that one moment that they were alone and she tried. But he ran. He did not succumb to it. Or take Josiah. King Josiah. Josiah was on the throne. And he was on the throne as a young man. He had been on the throne for several years, and by the age of 26, he's on the throne. Now think of a 26-year-old king. What would a 26-year-old king have to do with listening to anybody? He was already a king for 18 years before that, so he had no, no desire to listen to anybody, no natural desire to listen to anybody. He had all the wealth and all the power he would want. He was already a successful man. He had the army at his will. He could do whatever he wanted. He, yet, at age 26, when the word of God was read to him in 2 Chronicles 34, in 2 Chronicles 34, when the word of God was read to him at age 26, he repented. He was disgusted at his sin and the sin of his nation, and he repented of his sins. And he carried out reformation in his country, the likes of which had not occurred for many years before. This young man, Josiah, did so. He was very faithful to the Word of God. And he was so faithful to the Word of God, something is said of him in, in the Second Kings version of it, Second Kings 23-25, that is said of no one else in all of Scripture. We read earlier... Deuteronomy 6, the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Notice in 2 Kings 23, 25, this is said of King Josiah, this young man. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. King Josiah, a young man, by the grace of God, that is, by the word of God and the spirit of God, was able to do this. He was able to live a pure and righteous life. And also take Daniel, Daniel the prophet. In Daniel chapter 1, it was youths and probably teenagers that were taken captive so that they could be trained, Jewish teenagers, trained by the Babylonian court, by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian officials, 
in a rigorous period so that they would be trained in the Babylonian language, Babylonian literature, Babylonian laws, Babylonian religions, in whatever was necessary to make them suitable officials in the court of Babylon, and especially to be a bridge between the Babylonians and the Jewish people. So, but when the food was set before Daniel, he said, I'm not, I can't eat this. This, would def this kind of food would defile me. I will not. And it says in Daniel chapter 1 that he resolved in his mind not to eat the king's choice food. He resolved in his mind. He was a young man. And he had this temptation right there, right before him. He could have succumbed to it. He could have succumbed. After all, if he doesn't eat it, he could be put to death. If he doesn't eat it, he won't be a court official. He might be a, a, a ditch digger. He might be one who has to be a mason and be out there in the hot sun all the time. He might be something else. But he was resolved. And he depended upon God. And God delivered him. Daniel was a young man. And lastly, we have, there are many examples, but we have in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. We do not know the age of Timothy, though he is called a youth or a young man. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. 1, 1 Timothy 4, 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. He, as a young man, can show himself as an example of those who believe to those who are younger than he, those who are his peers, and then those who are elder than he. He can be an example to all the believers of what it means to walk with God. His speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That was the question in Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? It is possible. It is indeed. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. <coughs> verse 19. 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We must cleanse ourselves from these defilements, these impurities. And what does he say in verse 22? Flee from youthful lusts. We must flee from that which is sin and pursue the opposite. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We have to reject that which is wicked, but we also have to pursue that which is righteous. We cannot be neutral and we cannot say that We'll just sit and wait for something to happen. We have to have a deliberate, intentional desire to reject the evil and to pursue the righteousness. Both are, have to be willfully and strongly a, a determination within each of us. 
It's not enough just to say, I'm not going to do something, or in due time, if I choose, I will be closer to God. We cannot do anything like that. We have to be determined to have deliberate rejection of evil and pursuit of good and righteousness. But it doesn't happen alone. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, With those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We have to do it in the company of those who are desirous of this very thing. It is not good for any of us to be alone. It's not good for any of us to think that we can pursue the Christian life without the aid of others, without the example of others, without the prayers of others, without the model of others, without even the exhortation, whether the encouragement or the admonishment of others. We need to constantly be in the presence of others in the church who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are, he says, from a pure heart because there are some people who practice Christianity or who pretend Christianity. They come to church. They have the name John or Mary, but they're not truly living according to the biblical John or the biblical Mary. They are hypocrites. They don't have a pure heart. And so we have to be careful, even in the church. We have to see who is calling on the Lord from a pure heart, who is truly desiring to live righteously and godly. That's what we need. And young people need this. When he says this about young people who need to keep it according to God's word, he is not excluding the old people. He's not excluding them at all. We know that this is the case because the Bible teaches that from the time of our conversion until the time of our consummation or coffin, by the time we end our life, we must progress in sanctification. It's not enough to be converted and then to put a hope, which would be a false hope, in our conversion and say, well, I'm saved and there's nothing else for me to do. I can live on and live my life as I please. We cannot do so. That is not true, that is unbiblical, and that is fatal and pernicious. It will destroy us. It will destroy us. And people who think that way, that the Christian life is easy and breezy, these are the people who will face the wrath of God in the day of judgment because that idea, that notion is completely foreign to the Bible. The Bible teaches personal holiness personal sanctification, progressive sanctification, whatever word we want to use, gradual sanctification, it teaches that. We must tighten our belts. We must gird our, or Peter says, gird your loins for action. Fix your hope completely on the grace of God to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17. He exhorts us to live this way. And this is what we all must do. Verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. With all my heart. Here he's expressing that he's not living a double life. And he does not have a double-mindedness about him. James warns us in James 1.8 and 4.8 that we ought not to be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We have to have this determination. We have to have this complete and utter resolve to live according to the will of God. Here, with all my heart, the greatest commandment exhorts us from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 
5, exhorts us to do it with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. We have to do so. We have to do it with our complete inner being so that we're not hypocritical and we're not hip, uh, double-minded, wayward, tossed here and there by waves and winds of doctrine. This man says this, the other one says that. I don't know which to choose. I don't know which way to go. We can't figure it out. It's too complicated. I'm just going to give up and, and mosey on down the road and do my own business. No, we can't be that way. We have to pursue the love of God, the knowledge of God, with our whole heart. Whatever is, therefore, distracting us, whatever is a hindrance and a stumbling block before us, we must get rid of them. We must get rid of them. Otherwise, we will wander away. And look at verse 10. He says, Do not let me wander from your commandments. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Here, he is reiterating this fact that we spoke of before. In our conversion, it is one way. It is monergistic. That is, only God is at work to change a dead man into a live man, a living man. Only God does that. He does that by His predestination. He does that by His grace. He changes us by bringing the Holy Spirit to change a hard and stony heart, insensitive and, and, and callous towards the things of God, to be sensitive to the things of God. He grants us faith thereby and also repentance as gifts of God. He does so. This happens one way, monergistically. But the Christian life is synergistic. It's synergistic. And that is that it takes our new creation, the new man within us, the new heart within us, to be resolved and determined day by day and moment by moment to do the will of God. We have to do the will of God. This is a part of what he's meaning here by with all my heart. This heart has to be completely resolved to do so. The new creation that we are must be determined to do so and not to wander at all from God's commandments. What we also see is a prayer. And he is depending upon the grace of God as well. He is not only depending upon his own knowledge of the situation, his own knowledge of temptations, his own knowledge of his own sins and what he must do, but he pleads with God do not let me wander from your commandments. I need your grace, Lord. I need you to help me. Even in the Lord's Prayer, we have a reiteration of this. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are many circumstances out there. Many, many kinds of temptations. Don't Bring me into those, Lord. Keep me away from them, Lord. I don't want to be susceptible. I don't want to be vulnerable in those circumstances. So keep me away from them. Not only am I pleading with you, God, to work out the circumstances to keep me away from those things, but I know that I will not choose. I will not be uh, so foolish as to say, it won't happen to me. It could never happen to me. I'm better, or I've already overcome that. And people... Uh, other people might succumb to it, but I no, I would never succumb to it. No, we cannot have that attitude. We have to say to God, do not let me wander. Do not lead me into temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 
1 Corinthians 10, 11. The Apostle Paul has just listed a few of the sins of the people of Israel. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We can't say, oh, I'm beyond that. I'm above that. It would never happen to me. We can't ever say that. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. The temptations that we face are common to man. So the sins that we face and these temptations, these circumstances are common. We're not the only ones. We're not the only ones. So we cannot and should not be discouraged and think that we are an isolated example and no one else thinks this way. No one else has these temptations. On the other hand, though, we ought to remember that God's faithful and that God will give us ways to escape the temptations. He gives us ways. One, by His sovereign grace, He works out circumstances. And two, by the knowledge of His Word and the determination with our new heart to live for Him with our whole heart, a determination that we will not put ourselves in those situations. This is the way we must do it to endure and live our Christian life. Back to Psalm 119 and verse 11. He proceeds to say, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Even though he's speaking in the first person, he's not meaning that he is the only one who should do this. After all, even 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things happen as examples for us so that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Or Romans 15.4, whatever happened in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. When he speaks in the first person, he is speaking as one who is petitioning God and explaining to God what's on his mind and he desires God to work with what's on his mind and heart. And in the same way, he's serving as a model for us. He is an example to us that even we as individuals should be praying like this, should be desirous of this. It's not enough for one or the other to do this with us excluding ourselves from the equation. We also, as individuals, must do this very thing. And what is it? To treasure the Word of God in our heart. To treasure the Word of God in our heart. To treasure or to hide it, to keep it here inside the heart. Now, we know from his desire for obedience, he doesn't mean for it to stay there. But he does mean for it to work inside of us. To work inside this new heart so it continues to transform the the new man and the old man fighting against the old man. The new man fighting against the old man or the old self in order to overcome sin. We must treasure it. Treasuring it by having it impact our thinking, impact our values, impact our natural reactions to things, our knee-jerk reaction to things. It should be treasured in us in a sense that we 
think about it. We are reflecting upon it. We don't easily forget it. It's inside of us, and then we also memorize it. Treasuring it has to include memorization. How is one going to keep it there if it's not there? A treasure is usually hidden, and it's kept there, and it's always there. A treasure is not kept there and then thrown away and forgotten. The treasure is there, and we know very well it's there, and we want to protect it. We want to maintain its presence there. So in that same way, we ought to meditate. We ought to memorize. And I know when we speak of the memorization of Scripture, it scares a lot of people. It especially scares those who are uh, older uh, people. It will scare them and say, well, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm too old. Or I, I can't do it because I don't have that gift. You might have that gift. He might have that gift. But I don't have that gift. I can't do that. Actually, we all can to some degree. To some degree. Whatever it is. God has given us different abilities. That is granted. It is granted. However, even with the abilities God has given you, He has given you the ability to remember some. Maybe not as much as your neighbor, but He has given you some abilities. We, after all, we memorize all kinds of things. We memorize songs. We, we memorize lines, movie lines. We memorize statistics, sports statistics. We memorize, all kind, we memorize a, a, a sales pitch. We memorize all kinds of things. We know. We have it all done, down verbatim. We, we, we do that, and we, if we have that ability, why not redirect it, at least some, redirect it toward the Word of God. Redirect it toward the Word of God. And I have had many, many friends over the years who have lesser abilities to memorize, and yet, as time passes on, a year passes on, two years pass on, three years, I am amazed at how much they are indeed able to memorize. They are able to memorize. And they do so in ways that were beyond even their own understanding and capability, they, their own imagination. They never thought that they could know and memorize so much Scripture. And it is good. It is good so that we have the Word of God ready and available. Just like Jesus did in Matthew 4, 1 to 10. He had the Word of God inside him when he was alone in the wilderness and Satan confronted him. He repeated the Word of God to Satan and correctly interpreted the Word of God to Satan in order to refute him. That's what we need to do day by day. The purpose is not a vain purpose. Notice in verse 11 that I may not sin against you. That's the purpose statement. That or so that, in order that, I may not sin against you. That should be our desire now. In the past, before Christ, we had no qualms about sinning against God. Sometimes our conscience might prick us, but we really didn't think of it in its true impact in our relationship to God. We never really did that. But now, how can we offend our Lord and Master? How can we offend the one who saved us from our sins? How can we offend the one who has shown us so much truth and light? How can we offend the one who sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins? Who did not deserve to die and, re and received our penalty upon him? 
How can we sin against Him? This is the way we ought to look at God and look at His Word. Earlier I mentioned that there are people and preachers who say we should not uh, ha have knowledge of the Word of God or much knowledge of the Word of God. We shouldn't read it. We shouldn't study it. And the churches should not be about preaching and teaching the Bible. That's what they say. But when they say that, what will they encourage people to do? According to this verse, verse 11, that I may not sin against you. They are encouraging, firstly, by that prohibition, they are encouraging people to be ignorant of God, and which would be a sin. And other passages clearly tell us and exhort us to know the Bible. So they encourage us to sin and rebel against the clear teaching of the Bible to know the Word of God. That's what they're doing. And secondly, they are encouraging us to sin against God. Because if we don't know, then we will be wayward, and in our waywardness, we will sin against God. Many times people have said, I didn't know that that or the other was a sin. This is the first time I'm hearing it. Well, if we know the Word of God, then we will not sin against God. That's what we all need to know and do. Remember, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so, if Jesus believes that his words will not pass away, and the word of Christ is supposed to dwell in us richly, then we would disobey and sin against God, even the New Testament teaches us to know the Word of God inside and out. Verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Blessed are you, O Lord. He praises God. He exalts God. He is expressing this kind of praise and exaltation of God because he knows that's what his life is all about. His life is not ultimately about himself. Yes, he is, has benefited by the grace of God in his life. But he knows that his life is all about the glory of God, the honor of God, the praise of God. He is determined to praise and honor and glorify God. Because he knows his life is about God, praising God and honoring and glorifying God, he knows that this God that he worships has to be his ultimate and supreme teacher. Once he has God fixed on him, straight ahead, the glory of God, then, then he knows that God, my God, is my best teacher. That's why he says, teach me your statutes. If we have a correct view of God, we will naturally, in humility, say, I'm here. I'm teachable. Tell me whatever I need to know. I know who you are, and my life is for your glory. So since my life is for your glory, I live for you. I want you to teach me. This is what should happen. This should happen to all of us. This should happen from conversion until coffin. To all of us. We ought to be teachable and asking God to show us what His Word says. This is evidence of a true believer. A true believer, whether anybody tells him directly or not at his conversion, he knows, he has a sense that he must know the Word of God. 
First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. He says, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and, and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We ought to reject the sin of verse 1, and then in verse 2, we ought to pursue the word that's feeds us the pure milk of the word. We ought to grow in respect to that salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If we tasted God's kindness when we first heard the gospel and believed the gospel, we will want more of that. What newborn infant, after tasting the milk of the mother, does not want more, does not cry Inevitably, within a few minutes or an hour, and want more and more and more until he's satisfied temporarily and then he wants more. Satisfied temporarily, he wants more. This is natural and good for newborn infants to do so. And this is the analogy he uses. He says that as spiritual newborns, this is what we must have. We must desire this. We must desire that word that, that we tasted we want more and more of it. However, the reality in our churches is that we, we think we have newborn infants, new converts, but actually we have stillborn infants. Something has happened. They have come out of the womb. They're, they're there, but there's no pulse. There's no crying. There's no desire for milk. This is what happens with false conversions in our churches. We have stillborn people, stillborn infants, spiritually speaking, who don't really understand the gospel. And people are saying, and pastors and ministers are saying, oh yes, that person is a convert. That person believed. That person received Christ. That person received Jesus in his heart. He raised his hand. He walked to the front. He did this or that. And he saved. When actually those are the people we're talking about are actual actually spiritual, stillborn infants. They don't really believe because those kinds of people do not have a desire for the Word of God. Now, it's not as though just new Christians need to have this desire. In Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, these believers had been in the faith for quite some time in Hebrews 5. But then he admonishes them. He scolds them because they have not been growing, not the way that they should be. Hebrews 5:11. Hebrews 5:11. Concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Continue in chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, and laying on of hands, 
and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. What are these elementary teachings, elementary principles, that newborns should already know and believe and understand and be able to repeat to others? He says so in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. How many people who say that they are Christians and who have been in the faith for many years now are able to teach these doctrines of verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, to other people? He's saying these are elementary. And we ought to be able to move on beyond this to other teachings. To grow in our knowledge of those teachings. And if we do go on to the other ones, then we are partaking of solid food. 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It is good and right for newborns to desire milk. But it is not good for a 5-year-old and a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 50-year-old to only desire milk. It's not right. He must partake of solid food. So this is the way we show ourselves to be teachable. Lord, blessed are you. Teach me your statutes. That should happen throughout life. Verse 13, Psalm 119:13. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Now, even though he's been speaking about his heart, now he's saying, but what's in my heart doesn't stay there. I speak of it. I tell of it. I don't keep it quiet. I open my lips and tell people of the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.13 I believed, therefore I spoke. I believed, therefore I spoke. Those who truly believe in the truth of God, whatever the truth is, on whatever topic the Bible addresses, those who truly believe it do speak of it. If they don't speak of it, they don't believe it. Many people will say, if you ask them privately, do you believe this or that? And they will say, oh yes, yes, yeah, I believe this or that. But you never hear them speak of it. You never, tell somebody, you never hear them tell somebody else, maybe even cross somebody in a private conversation, no, no, I don't believe that, and you shouldn't believe that. They never do that. Or from the pulpit. The, the, the pastors and the clergy who are in the pulpit, they don't cross anybody on what they really believe. They don't do that. They don't want to offend anybody. They will only say those things that will please their hearers. But Paul says, and David says, with my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. And Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 4.13, because I believed, therefore I spoke. What we truly believe will come out of our mouth. It will come out. And if it does not come out, then they don't truly believe. But it's also believing in everything. Look at verse 13. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. All the ordinances of your mouth. It's not good enough just to speak of a few matters. Or only those matters that are more pleasant to us. More delightful for us to speak on those matters. It's not good enough to do that. We must speak of all of the ordinances of God's mouth, all of the Word of God, all of the issues that it presents, all of the doctrines, all of the practices, whatever God expects of us, whatever He has said, all of it must be known, believed, obeyed, 
preached, proclaimed, whatever, all of it. Paul understood this. Acts 20, 26, he says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God is what's necessary. We cannot be cherry-picking this or that doctrine, this or that practice. Whatever the Bible says, our sensitive, tender heart should say, that's what it says, that's what I should believe, that's what I will do. Verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. Now he speaks of his enthusiasm, the great zeal that he has. He says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, the way of God, as much as in all riches. This is the NASB, New American Standard Bible, as much as in all riches. It may be rendered above all riches, beyond all riches. Yes, people are very happy when they have a lot of wealth, or when they accumulate wealth, or when they have sudden wealth, or the, even the prospect of accumulation of sudden wealth, whether it's gold or land, some property, whatever it may be, they are overjoyed. They have great zeal and enthusiasm to not only obtain it, but then to use it for their benefit. People do that. But notice here, that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of joy, he has with the Word of God. The Word of God. It's more precious to him than gold. It's more precious to him than honey. It's more precious to him than any material and physical object in the world. He wants to, to know the Word of God. He wants to walk in that way. He rejoices in it. He's got no shame. Unabashedly, he's going forward and straight in the path of Christ. That's what he is. He's got no shame. He's no coward. He speaks up and he walks and he's determined to do whatever. And he does it joyfully. He doesn't do it timidly. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and discipline. He has not given us a, a, a spirit of timidity he gives us the joy of the Lord. I re have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. We should pray for this. We should desire this. This, should, this is evident in a true believer. To rejoice in the way of God. Verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Here and in the next verse, I believe he is expressing resolve again. Determination. It's as though... It is an implicit vow. It's a vow. This is who I'm, I am. This is what I am about. So he says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. He will meditate. That is, he'll read. He'll reflect upon it. He'll speak them. He'll memorize them. He'll, he'll wonder, what does this mean? How, let me study this place in the Bible and let me uh, read this context and let me go to this other place that speaks of the same topic and let me go ask my friend or let me go ask my pastor or let me go ask, uh, read this book, this reliable book that will show me what this verse means. I will meditate on what this truth. He is determined to be that way in his Christian life. And regard, that means to favorably regard the ways of God. He's going to Consider the ways of God favorable. He's going to look at the ways of God with delight. He's not going to do it uh, with uh, a negative attitude. He's not going to do it begrudgingly. He's not going to do it 
with a sour disposition. He's not going to do it that way. He's going to regard it with favor. He's going to regard it with delight and joy. That's, that's the way he's going to look at the Word of God. I'm determined. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. I already know that. I'm resolved to live that way according to the Word of God. This is what he wants. 16. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Expressing again this delight, this joy, this desire to do the will of God. And it will be in these statutes of God. These laws and ordinances of God. This is what he wants to know. This is what he wants to do. And he wants to do it so faithfully that he never wants to forget. I shall not forget your word. That means he has to memorize that means he has to know what it says. He has to know exactly what it says so that whenever a situation arises, he can recall to his mind, if he cannot open the Bible himself at the moment, recall to his mind, not forget what the Word of God says in that circumstance. Deuteronomy 6 was that way too. Deuteronomy 6 said later in the chapter that when you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you have olive yards and vineyards, you have land that you did not plant, and you have a fruitful harvest, you have houses in which are full of many precious things you did not put there, you did not build those houses. When you inherit these because you conquer the Canaanites, then don't forget the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Don't forget the Lord your God who delivered you from that miserable slavery. Just as they were enslaved physically, that is an image of our slavery to sin. Don't forget what the Word of God is, what the Word of God says, where we were when without the Word of God, we need the Word of God. Every Word of God we need. Don't forget. Therefore, find ways to remember. Find ways to encounter the Word of God more and more and more. This is what we need. And lastly, one objection. This emphasis on the Word of God, one objection that has come uh, to my mind or to my hearing over the years is that the Word of God, those who focus on the Word of God are impractical people. Impractical people. And when you preach the Word of God, it does not help with the application in daily life. That's what people have said. And that's why they want to avoid it. I have come to understand that that means, the true translation of that is, it's impractical to the hearer because the hearer doesn't want to practice it. He wants to practice whatever he wants. And it's also impractical because he came to church, he came to church to be amused and tickled to death. That's why he came to church. So if you make me think more seriously about God, you didn't tickle me. I, I thought I came to be amused and tickled, to be entertained, and you didn't do that. Therefore, that sermon was impractical. That's what they mean. But actually, according to the biblical sense of practicality and application and obedience and a changed life and a benefit to life, a blessing in life, it is by the Word of God. 
The Word of God influences our values, influences our thinking, our speech, our behavior, everything that we pursue in life. It is immensely practical. It's immensely applicational. That's what the Word of God is, in the true sense. The Bible is, because God desires us to be just like His Son, and His Son reflects the Father. This is the way God expects us to be. So let's be determined to understand these things. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.